This is The Ghost Light, the weekly interview podcast that shines the spotlight on theater professionals that don't see it as often as the stars. At 21, I was a young performance artist and around I'd run with art school dudes and we would spend our day Greetings, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this, the 14th episode of The Ghost Light. It seems like telling one person about the show went pretty well last week, so I'm going to encourage you to do the same. Pick one new person, or if you're a new listener, find one person and tell them about the show. If they like theater, if they like interview podcasts, let them know about The Ghost Light, and that would be greatly helpful to me. Likewise, if you want to find me on social media, you can find me at TGLPod on Twitter and Facebook. I make occasional posts about theater-related articles or things that I find interesting, and then of course I also update each episode. Sometimes I put unique artwork up there, stuff like that. I don't have much to talk about this week, so without further ado, I would like to introduce this episode. I'm very excited about this one. In this one, I speak with the theater head of the Texas Tech Department of Theater and Dance. His name is Mark Charney. He's been in the industry for a very long time, has had multiple types of jobs. He's a dramaturg, he is a playwright, he is a director, he is many things, he wears many hats. So it was very exciting to get his take on the theater and things that he finds interesting. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Ghost Light. All right. Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Mark Charney. Mark is the chair of the Texas Tech Department of Theater and Dance, but he's also a playwright. His play, The Power Behind the Palette, won the David Mark Cohen Award. He also works in criticism and dramaturgy. He has a BA in from Clemson, a uh, MA from University of New Orleans, and a PhD from Tulane. Thank you for joining me, Mark. Thank you for inviting me, man. I appreciate it. No problem at all. So to get started, would you mind just kind of talking through your career, how you got into the theater, and uh, where you're at now? Sure, Matt. I mean, it's sort of an interesting story because uh, I was raised in a small mill town in South Carolina. The town is called Williamston. And it was really sort of run by uh, this guy Milliken, who's sort of a corporate monster. And the town sort of revolved around this mill. And I was uh, the only Jew. I was from the only Jewish family in that town. And um, I was told often by very nice people that I was going to hell and they really um, felt sorry for me, but they, they uh, were praying for me every night. Um, Peter became this big outlet. Uh, my dad was from uh, Brooklyn and my mom uh, from South Carolina. And so I started seeing theater at a young age and thought about almost nothing else. I was one of those guys who grew up with theater on my mind. And uh, I went to Clemson University I got a BA and there wasn't really a theater program then. There was just a theater club in 1974. And so I majored in English. Um, right when I entered the door, I sort of absolutely knew that I wanted to be in education the rest of my life. I thought, I love this. I don't want to get out. And actually, um, that was pretty much what happened. In 1978, I graduated. I went to the University of New Orleans and got my master's in English, but I was also teaching there when I did, and that was mostly freshman English. 
for them. And then uh, came back to Clemson for two years as an instructor. And then in 1982, went to Tulane to get my PhD, also in English, in uh, modern American with a minor in rhetoric and comp. Now, all the way through, I was taking theater classes. Uh, all the way through, I was writing. When I was a kid, I wrote plays. We used to do them on the band bus going to uh, football games. And I'd divide them up and we would do my plays like a funny thing happened on the way to band camp. Or in high school, there was one called uh, Cupid is the Cause of Madness and Mayhem in the Two-Gun Saloon in the heart of Texas in about 1902. Um, <laughs> That's a great that title. The state festival. Yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, that was the state festival in 1974. Um, but I got into English. I got a uh, job at Clemson again. So it was sort of like Clemson, New Orleans, Clemson, New Orleans, Clemson uh, in 1987. Got married, moved back to Clemson and started uh, more or less teaching drama and post, post-contemporary literature. Then I ended up building and taking over the film uh, program there. But I, the entire time I was working in theater and that really started not only with my directing for the then Department of Performing Arts, but my uh, connection with the Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival. Uh, I started there in, in criticism and actually sort of Xeroxed uh, a good bit for uh, the Critics Institute that was there at a festival that Clemson held. I asked if I could take over that the next year and they let me. And I did that fairly successfully. So it went from five or six participants to like 35. One thing led to the other. And then I was soon chair of that region. That was region four. I was working with 10 states in theater. I was writing plays more full time, but I was also chair of an English department. And that was an 87 person English department. So when my playwriting career sort of took off, when I got a job at the O'Neill, helping with their Critics Institute, and most of my research seemed revolved around theater, the Department of Performing Arts asked me to move over there as their playwright in residence. And um, I was there five years, uh, six years, I think, as Department of Performing Arts. And then I moved to Texas Tech in 2012. That's a very brief overlook. Yeah, yeah. It seems like you've been all over the place, but with, you know, a focus in both education and playwriting in the theater. Uh, what, what kind of drew you to the theater in the first place? Well, when I was when I was living in Williamston, which was one of the least exotic places in the world, Matt, <laughs> I, um, I I think it was all about fantasy. We didn't have much access in uh, the 60s uh, to get around. There weren't cities nearby. We had one movie theater uh, that pretty much we called the Rat Palace and played double features. And the theater, the theater, uh, Greenville Little Theater got me involved at first and I saw some stuff and I don't know, it just, it just hit. And so throughout all of my degrees, what I mostly concentrated on was theater or drama or film. So it was all about, I think, visual stimulation and all about imagining things that weren't there in ways that seemed visceral and very real. So were you always just attracted to uh, the creative side of it, or were you also attracted to performance at any point? Oh, you know, I started as an actor. I think most everybody does. And I started loving musicals, which I think is sort of common. But no, I acted. My mom threw me on stage at three years old. I, crazy. I, I was uh, holding the hand of this little girl um, 
and somebody was singing um, a song about being too young to fall in love. It was me and this little girl. And then I was made to do declamation contest each year. And very early on um, was an actor and I acted in high, uh, high school uh, until I became a playwright and then I wrote that play, but I was also in it. And then when I went to college, I was in a bunch of plays. When I was an instructor, I was in a bunch of plays. And uh, I think in 1991, I sort of stopped wanting to act. I think it got a little too scary trying to remember the lines. And I got so worried about forgetting the lines, I realized that it wasn't really fun anymore. And, and I felt like I could direct. I'd studied it and I learned it. And so I moved sort of more into directing. What's interesting, though, is that what got me back to playwriting was when I was a critic and uh, working for the O'Neill Theater Institute for their National Critics Institute, I kept seeing plays. And these plays were chosen out of 1,200, 1,500 applications. And I, I thought, gosh, I love that. I love that. I could do better than that. And so I wrote a play called 37 Stones or The Man Who Was a Quarry. At that time, I'd had 37 kidney stones, and I also had a very awkward relationship with my mother. And so I likened the two in sort of a dark comedy where uh, my mother was sort of metaphorically the stones in my life, and it was about a young man's struggling to find uh, a relationship with a woman he was in love with, with a very overbearing mother. And so... That went off Broadway and it got a production in Washington, D.C. Um, and then I decided I would write uh, uh, two more plays. And the two other plays I wrote were uh, male medical dysfunction plays. Uh, I used some of my ailments at the time. Now I've had 70 kidney stones. Um, but I had a double hernia at one point, And I wrote a play called Double Hernia that was sort of a midlife crisis play. And then I had these autoimmune things. So I wrote this play called Autoimmunity. What, what I was trying to do, I think, was to talk about some of the traits that men share that normally are attributed to women, because I think we get jealous. I think we're very sensitive. We're just taught to hide it. And so this medical male dysfunction trilogy, the thing that binds it together, I think, are the female qualities that men natural sh naturally share. Uh, and I think you know, the struggles we have with our parents, uh, with our midlife. And then I was pushing ahead, but uh, with coming to terms with, with um, our death in that third one. Well, those, uh, those sound very interesting, so I'll, I'll definitely have to check those out. Um, I, I do want to get into some of the questions that I have. When did you decide that you wanted to focus on education and what did that revelation kind of look like? Uh, I went to, I started at Clemson in 1974 and I majored in English and I could not, I guess I hadn't assumed that college uh, life would be so agreeable to me. I, to be honest, this is a, it's almost embarrassing to admit, Matt, in 11 years of higher education, I only missed one class and uh, I, I sort of was in love with the idea of it. And I think it transformed me. I'm from that small town. It was mostly Southern Baptist. And in some ways, very singular in perspective. And so education, I mean, I was a different guy after the first year there. And then I kept, I kept growing. And I thought at some point, if I can facilitate this in, in other people, it would be 
one of the grandest things I could ever dedicate my life to. And so I sort of knew it by sophomore year and uh, I didn't know much about assistantships or what it meant to get an MA, uh, but I learned about that. And I had a very good mentor, this woman named Joan Bobbitt, who had been to University of New Orleans 10 years before I decided to go. And she really encouraged me to go. And, um, and moving from South Carolina to New Orleans was another huge revelation. There I was in a very different atmosphere. South Carolina and Clemson was three quarters, three quarters. It was four fifth uh, middle class white folks. And the dorm I stayed in at UNO was a good 80% African American and 10% uh, 10% uh, uh, not uh, uh, international. And then, um, and then, you know, less than 10%, I think, white. And that was good for me. When I taught at University of New Orleans, I was very young and I taught freshman English. Uh, there may be in 30 people, there were maybe three or four white people. There was a guy in a wheelchair. There was a blind guy and everybody else was either African-American or from a different nationality. That was good for me too. So I just kept growing. You mentioned the diversity aspect of going to a new place. Uh, can you kind of expound upon why that was important for you? Yeah. Um, I think that when you're raised in a small town that has a very unified view, uh, college is your first step. And Clemson was a fairly unified view too, but it didn't seem like it. Um, I met people of all different religions and all different faiths. And of course, you end up talking about that a lot as a freshman. The English classes spoke to me the most because I found that reading, not unlike theater, uh, really took you uh, to a different place. And so it was largely English that really hit with me. And then the drama I took, but drama at the time was part of an was part of English departments. And that was true a lot around the country. You know, it was rare that you had a theater program that wasn't yoked to an English department. So they, they were together to me. And so when you go to a place like New Orleans, uh, and it's not that I hadn't traveled, uh, my, I had relatives in Washington, D.C., and I went around with my dad. My mom and dad were divorced, and my mom didn't travel much, but my brother and I went there and other places. But New Orleans, I mean, if you think about it, the sensory sort of idea of it at all, the smells and, and what you see, uh, the people that you meet, uh, the air you breathe, it's all very different than what I was used to in this small town in South Carolina. So, uh, I really, I mean, I took advantage and that was when I, I did something, Matt, that people always talk about. I sort of dedicated myself to being a guy who doesn't get much sleep. Um, I realized in college and especially in new Orleans that, uh, I wanted to do well because I wanted to get assistantship. So I would study really hard, but I also wanted to have fun. And so many of my friends, we're doing super well, weren't having fun. So I thought the easiest thing to give up would be sleep. And uh, so I started sleeping less and less. And as it is now, I probably think uh, three, four hours, or some days just one or two. Mm-hmm. So That's it's impressive. <laughs> well, uh, you know, people say I'll die quicker and you never know. Um, um, well, you know, what's interesting about that, of course, is that it gives you a lot more, it gives you a lot more time. And so <clears throat> I use that time when I was in school to make sure I did well. For example, I had a PhD oral exam at Tulane. The oral exam was on, I went to say, I'm going to come studying for this. What do I need to read? And they said, start with Beowulf 
and in with now. And I said, that's everything ever written. And they said, actually, we can ask you, we can ask you anything ever written. And so it was like, what? So I studied eight hours a day for a year from four in the morning till, till noon, um, except one day when I was hit by a car and Christmas. My goodness. And, um, I did fine at the exam, but boy, talk about overkill. Yeah, right. But I was so smart in 1987. <laughs> <laughs> I read so many, I had 8,000 note cards, Matt. Yeah. So. Well, you were a much better student than I. Um, it's clear that you have a love for education. So, you know, how, how, did, how did your experience and how does your love for education inform your work as an educator, a playwright, a critic, a dramaturg? Well, you know, I, I jokingly, when I, when I talk to, when I talk to students, it, 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 it all began with never being in a position that you feel like is too good to do menial tasks. Um, for example, I was, uh, when I was in charge of the critics institutes, uh, and, and I helped throughout the country to sort of improve the quality, Greg Henry, who worked at the Kinney center, I, I kept writing him and saying, actors go to Washington for the national festival. Designers go to Washington. Playwrights go to Washington. Why not the critics? So at one point, he said, you win. You're right. I'm going to bring you here, and you can help coordinate. And I'll bring the guy, Dan Sullivan, from the O'Neill. And because the winning critic or critics got to go up to the O'Neill. So I met, and then Dan said, oh, you got to come up here and, and be a critic. you got to come here and do it. So I did, and I loved it. It was, I mean, Michael Feingold, all these people, Linda Weiner, uh, we're, we're looking at your writing and tearing it apart. And I thought, wow, I'm learning so much. It was great. I was seeing great plays, having a good time, getting all inspired. When I left, I said, can I ever do this again? And Dan said, uh, no, not really. I don't think there's any way unless you get a play accepted. And then he called me about halfway through the year and he said, okay, you're chair of an English department. I get that. Uh, we probably could bring you back, but it would have to be like as an intern and you know, I was in my late forties then I don't know that you want to do that. You don't make much money. Uh, you know, we give you a stipend, you Xerox, you run errands. And I said, Oh no, anything to get up there. And that was in 2002. And now I'm associate director of the critics Institute working with Chris Jones. I think what happens, uh, what I learned and I try to impart upon my students, Matt, is that if you love something, and you want to be around it, uh, you don't have to pay attention to what rank or the hierarchy is there. You just actually put the time in to help perpetuate what you're in love with. Uh, I sort of started with the Critics Institute that way. Then Jim Wren on Region 4 sort of asked me to be vice chair long before I was ready. And I wasn't going to do it. And uh, at the last minute, I thought I'd throw myself in there. And then suddenly I, I meet and work with 10 states uh, in the Southeast in theater, and then go to the national festival where Greg Henry and all the cohorts, um, Harry Parker, who I believe, you know, I meet all these people. I learn so much. I'm around smart, innovative, imaginative, creative people. Um, and I, I truly think the Kennedy center job really, really changed my life. Um, it led to my working at the O'Neill, uh, as associate director, I'm head of playwrights and creative teams for ATHA, which is the Association for Theater for Higher Educators. I'm on the board of directors of the National Association of Schools of Theater. I'm artistic director of the uh, International Schools of Southeast Asia with interdisciplinary stuff that I do. Um, 
I like theater and I don't mind hard work in trying to, to make it relevant. Um, I created a program called Wild Wind Performance Lab that for a month brings people into Texas Tech and those, and 18 people come and in the course of a month. Students work from nine in the morning till 11 at night with really famous educators and theater professionals. And I, I created a devised program in Martha, Texas. It brings a bunch of people this year. Doug Wright, who won the Tony and the Pulitzer for I Am My Own Wife, went. And it's sort of like tying what you love uh, into giving students the experience you wish you had. That's a very good way to look at it. And, and kind of in tandem with that, um, where is Texas Tech as a department now? And where do you hope to leave it whenever you decide to retire? Uh, I'm, I, I'm pretty proud of this, actually, Matt. We were actually... We were a department when I came in and there was a school of art and there was a school of music. And I said, why are we a department? And they said, you're not at the same standard as the other two. But three years into it, we became a school of uh, theater and dance. We started putting a lot of time into experiential education. So I sent my kids to the Tennessee Williams Festival. We're taking 10 scholars up there uh, coming up next month. And um, they study with the best people in the world, uh, study Williams up there. And after a few years there, we were invited to take a show for the only university show that joins professional theaters up there. And, um, last year we were reviewed real favorably by the New York times and, uh, Huffington post. That wild wind program I created is going national. It brings 18 artists in to study, uh, acting, directing, design, and play development. Uh, the Martha intensives, two weeks in Marfa, Texas, where we work on devising something. We start with a hunch, like this year, the hunch was borders and you have 20 people and 11 days later, you put up a full play. Um, we send people to Prague every other summer. We go to Arts Advocacy Day in Washington and in Texas. We do the Kennedy Center stuff and we do every major conference. Um, we offer every degree, BA, MA, BFA, MFA, and PhD. Um, and when I first got there, Greg Henry said, you know, you've got all these degrees and we're putting out people with these degrees, but I can't see that you have like in a city, a professional theater to work with. And so I, I send my students all over the world. Some of them are in New Zealand. I have a Fulbright, uh, who's in Ireland. And then I bring these people in. And so while our faculty is big and we're doing well, um, we bring, uh, folks in and we bring folks out. I think we're in a great place. Um, when I came, we were accepting every graduate student who applied, and now we're turning away 65%. Um, we've given more money to each graduate student. Almost every graduate student has an international experience. We've added fellowships, and um, we're the only school that gives a healthy stipend uh, to each student and 2000 to each faculty member to travel each year. But that's along with what the college gives us. So I think we're unbelievably relevant and we're way out in Lubbock. We're near Amarillo. We're up sort of near Mexico. We're sort of five hours from Austin, six hours from Austin, five hours from Dallas. Uh, but I'm proud. We, we've hired a whole bunch more people. We've hired younger people um, who have given up going to other places to come, come to us. And uh, I guess, you know, some people, Matt, uh, work to live and I live to work. I, I love it. And so I'm, I'm happy going in in the morning. I'm happy staying late. I travel a lot. Um, we're going this year 
to the Tennessee Williams thing. I'm speaking at a human rights festival in uh, LA before. We're going to Hong Kong, um, Shanghai, and Beijing to recruit and work for the academy there. We took a bunch of students to an international festival last year in Dubai. Uh, I was up in Kuala Lumpur working with the International Association of Schools of Southeast Asia. And all of our faculty does that. And our, and our students do as well. So um, I'm pretty proud of it. And it seems like you built a great thing there. So for anyone who might be in a similar situation, how did you evaluate what you needed to do? Because you said that you love to work. So did you just come in and, you know, roll up your sleeves and then, or did you have a roadmap? What did that kind of look like? Oh, you know, it's funny. Um, when I interviewed, the graduate students met with me and they said, we're really unhappy. And I said, why? And they told me some, and I said, well, whether I come or not, whether you offer me the job or I want to take it, I said, it's your program. I said, you need to, you need to do something about it. So they put together a list of 42 um, problems they had with the program. And uh, they met with uh, uh, a chair before me, and I don't think he was interested in changing them all. So when I got in, they gave me that list again. Well, we had been recently accredited, so I looked at the accreditation report, and we had had a very recent graduate review. And to tell you the truth, so much of that stuff was echoed by these three things. So I met with every faculty member and staff member. I said, I'll take you to breakfast, lunch, dinner, or drinks. And we'll talk for an hour and a half. And then soon thereafter, I think a lot of the faculty, this is not a one-man thing. I have wonderful people like Linda Donahue and Bill Gelber and Jonathan Marks, all these people who helped initiate change. But um, we ended up uh, changing 37 of those things the first year. And the only reason we didn't change the other five was because I didn't think they were as viable. But I explained why, you know. It was a, it was a good challenge in so many ways, I think. But, you know, when you... We have graduate students who are unhappy, and sometimes they can be unhappy for such things, but it was, um, it was a lack of transparency in some ways. There were just, students didn't know where they stood or how some students got something and others didn't. And we're really student-centric. I just met with the graduate students today to explain exactly what that meant. But I think if they unified, if they, in a unified way, if they want something, if there's any way we can do it, we should do it for them with, within the realm of, of it being valuable. I'm sure they really appreciate that. Um, that's definitely an important thing, you know, for anybody who's looking to work in the theater to know that they have these kinds of opportunities for them. Yeah. Thank you for that. I, I, I think that what you want, you know, the students, I, I'm not so career oriented, Matt, but I don't want my students leaving with, with nothing to do. And so if you send them to these places, like, you know, we go to Tennessee Williams, this is our sixth year of that festival. Now we have one of our arts and men students helping run that festival. Um, several years in a row, uh, some of our actors have been in productions that have been reviewed by the New York Times. The 10 students who go with me each year, a lot of their dissertations and publications and conference presentations and theses have been on, uh, on Williams. I'll give you a good example. Um, there's a young man named Clay Martin, and he came in. And the autism center was being built next to us. And we have a, we developed a theater and dance in the community class. So every student in every degree program has to spend a semester in the community. So Clay wanted it to be over at the Burkhart Center. He was really interested in autism. And that blossomed, that blossomed under this student. And it became three sections 
every semester that work over with the students on the spectrum. But also we develop something we call the Burke Tech Players, which are half students on the spectrum and half our students who present a show every semester. Well, that's gone on when Clay graduated. Um, he got TC, one of TCG's $125,000 leadership grants. So he's up at Trinity Rep right now. And Trinity Rep is learning what we did at Texas Tech. They're beginning something called Spectrum Theater. And Clay paid for eight of our graduate students who worked with him to go up to Providence this summer out of his grant to help shape that program. Um, yeah, you know, Laura, Lauren Lynch went at the O'Neill went there and she was associate company manager and she was there for three and a half months. And I mean, I think that the more contacts we can make for them and then sort of teach them the best ways of following through, the better, right? Then they get all this experience. It's not only ours here in Lubbock, but all over. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have a very empowering personality. And unfortunately, not everyone listening can work with you and learn from you. So what advice... <laughs> I'm sure they wouldn't want to. I'm a little obsessive. <laughs> what, what advice would you give to somebody who, um, you know, how would you tell them to like channel their creativity? How can they succeed in the world of theater? Um, well, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer in, in sort of what the Kennedy Center sort of suggests. I think what you want to do uh, is give people you know, practical, uh, creative, and theoretical experience. I think you, as Tony Kushner says, you want them to read as much as they can. But they're not only reading, you sort of want to give them the skills to not accept everything they read. So they develop their critical acumen. Um, in this world right now, Matt, for example, the, the ability to, to see what's fake and what's not fake, how to see through that, how to decipher what's going on. And then I think you have to have practice and practice can't practice just can't be what you do at your campus. You have to see what goes on in professional venues. And that doesn't mean New York. And that doesn't mean Broadway. I think, I think that means going to the Williams festival and seeing all these plays that are site specific. I think it means tying in with the Humana festival like we do because Michael Legg comes in from Humana to be artistic director of wild wind. I think it's really learning play development in a, in a way, uh, that is professional. So I want my students acting. Most of our students have to audition, even if they're not in acting. I think it's important for the designers and other folks, if they're good enough to see it from all over. Um, so we try to do something holistically. And most of all, I think they have to understand the, uh, what they owe to the community. I think we're one of the few universities who makes every one of our students in every degree plan spend a semester there. So we've taken plays to uh, bilingual uh, areas in uh, the Hispanic area of of Lubbock because the we've had students who've written the play half Spanish, half English, and then they said they don't want to come up here to the university. So let's take the play to our area, and we get bigger houses that way. We're, we we we've, we've gotten a lot of success because we just um, broke ground on a new twenty three million dollar phase one of a building, um, and phase two will be about the same amount, and it will follow phase one. But we're going to, i give you an example. We're going to lose our theater next year, all of those spaces for the fall. We've decided to make the entire year site-specific, found, or immersive. But we're going to do the plays. We may do Hands in a Hard Body in a Nissan parking lot. We may do um, uh, a play in a graveyard. So next week, uh, one of my cohorts and I, Corey Norman and I, are going to go to uh, 
15 different locations in Lubbock, and we're going to pick the locations that seem like they will most hold an audience, and then we're going to start picking plays, and we're going to ask for the whole season, even though we'll have our new theater in the spring, uh, to be theater that is uh, site-specific or found. I think that's fun. It's fun. I think it's a good thing to teach our students um, that this big budget in college and all of these instruments and everything they have, which is great that they're learning, but what happens if you get rid of a lot of it? You know, so I think we'll get to the core of, of what theater is about that way. That was really rambling. I apologize. No, no, no. It's, this is all great. Um, I mean, that's very cool because in school, for me at least, we were never really taught for the most part, what to do with bare bones. We did do some small directing projects. We kind of had to scrape together a budget, but it's very cool that you're showing your students that other types of things out there exist. Well, and you know, what what a challenge it'll be. I mean, just in terms of sound, if we do a musical in, in a parking lot. Um, but I think, I think we'll get new audiences that way. And I want to get the community to sort of root for us, like come watch us do something different. You know, you'll have these patrons who like their seats, but I'm really hoping they'll take a, a chance. And the uh, students are real excited about it. We've never done something like this, but we put the community course out there and said everyone had to take it. And it was theater and dance. Everybody said, well, how are they going to get there? How, what's the transportation like? What's the insurance and the transportation like? And gradually it just, it just worked out. And, uh, and then our students say, I love dance. And I say, well, prove it by going to this environment and making them see that love because they know nothing about dance. And so the undergraduates work with the graduate students, the graduate students are liaisons with the agencies We go to hospitals. We, we had boys and girls clubs. We had transition centers, um, really poor income schools, uh, different Hispanic groups. It's, it's, a, it's sort of amazing. And when I teach in that, I look at, I look at what our students learn and then so many of them, then want to make outreach significant in their futures. Yeah. Well, um, this has been a very inspiring and illuminating 30 minutes for me, Mark. I really appreciate you coming on. You're a very interesting person. <laughs> well, thank you. I hope I didn't talk too much, number one, Matt, and I hope I didn't go on. I'm very enthusiastic about what I'm doing, but sometimes I think I can go on too long. I apologize if so. The love definitely comes across. I can feel it. Uh, but before we leave, are you working on anything? Do you have any shows coming up anywhere that maybe somebody can see? Anything you want to plug? I do. Um, uh, I'm actually writing a show that's going to go to the Prague Fringe Festival. That's next June. Um, and uh, I am... We're beginning a season with a production of Much Ado About Nothing that's set in the Civil War, but at the same time, we're doing Belleville, um, so I'm doing that. But right now, I'm producing uh, Gnotticus Fraulein, which is going up to the Tennessee Williams Festival, and will be performed there the third week of, of September. So um, all this stuff is good. You know, Lubbock is pretty far away, so you <laughs> have to come to Lubbock because something's in yeah. Lubbock. Um, you were from Fort Worth, right? I mean, you got your education. Yeah, Fort I went Worth. to TCU. That's how I know Harry Parker. Yeah, what a, a great yeah. guy! And there's a reason to go to there's a reason to go to Fort Worth. Now, I happen to think Lubbock is um, this wonderful secret. The weather is great. The traffic isn't bad. People are terrific. But um, but I do know it's not exactly a vacation destination. <laughs> I just wanted to say it's really great of you, number one, to to pull these stories together. Um, I've been listening to some of the ones that you've done and it's fascinating to follow other people's journeys, Matt. And I appreciate your coming up with the idea and including me. Thanks so much. Yeah, of course. I hope people are as inspired by you as I was. So 
I hope you have a great rest of your evening. Thanks so much, Matt. We'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. Thank you again for listening to the 14th episode of The Ghost Light. I hope you learned as much from Mark as I did. He's a very intelligent person with a bold personality, lots of things to say, and I I just absolutely love this talk. Next week, I'm going to be speaking with Donald Jordan, who is the artistic director of the City Rep. Uh, Some of you might know that as the Oklahoma City Rep. He is also kind of a journeyman in the theater. He has done so many things and has so many perspectives on so many facets of the theater. He's an artistic director, of course, first of all. He's also done prop design, set design. He's been an actor. He's done tons of stuff. So I'm looking forward to getting that episode out next week. Once again, if you want to find me on social media, please get at me at TGLpod on Twitter and Facebook, or you can email me at theghostlightpod at gmail.com. If you have any leads on someone you think would be good fit for the show, someone who has a unique perspective on the theater, is an interesting person and has a great story to tell, just go ahead and send me an email with their contact info and I will get in touch with them. So I will see you next time at the Ghost Light. <laughs>